So, um, so getting back to the self, I mean, so, so if you look at the self, like who are we ultimately, there's definitely a connection between who you think you are and, and where you think you came from. If you think you came just from blind forces of nature, then your existence is ultimately meaningless. You know, what do they say, dust to dust? If you just kind of were assembled blindly by material forces, then when you die, it's just those same forces just reabsorb you, and your life is ultimately meaningless. So, I, I mean, I was explaining this. Um, I was actually explaining this yesterday. That um, I'll go over it one more time. So I think it's a really important point. That I think we can demonstrate logically, not just I believe this, but logically that any empirical science or any level of material science, by definition, can never give a complete description of reality. <coughs> and uh, I'll explain what I mean by that. I'm, I'm going to offer you a logical proof of that, not just this is what I believe. <clears throat> uh, again, going back to Aristotle, uh, he introduced the term metaphysics. In Aristotle's time, physics just meant studying this world, you know, just studying the physical world, that was physics. And then Aristotle said, uh, there's physics, but there's metaphysics. Meta means beyond, or what comes afterwards. And so it's the idea that, uh, for example, Aristotle talks about an unmoved mover. Aristotle says that everything has a cause. And so if you go trace back the causal chain, even back to the beginning of the world, uh, ultimately, you could never really explain the world unless there's an original cause, which Aristotle calls the unmoved mover, or God. In other words, it's something which sets things in motion, but itself, or himself, or herself, whatever you want, is, uh, is not caused by something else. So, uh, be that as it may, um, I think it's very easy to prove it's very easy to prove logically that our entire civilization is ultimately based on metaphysical assumptions rather than science. For example, if you said we have to develop a political system, a judicial system, which is based on science, the last thing in the world you could ever justify would be democracy. Why? Not just because of the last election. <laughs> but also because, because democracy is based on a, an extremely metaphysical assumption that we are all equal. And there's no conceivable test that you can give human beings, whether it's musical, athletic, mathematical, physical. There's no conceivable test you can give humans that will show that we're equal. Every possible test, scientific test, will show us that we're all different. Some people are better at some things or other things. It's just We're just not equal. There's no way in the world you can empirically show we're equal. And any child could show that empirically we're not equal. So, despite that fact, we assert that we are equal against all scientific evidence that we're equal. And... Uh, 
and therefore we should have democracy, or therefore there should be equal justice under the law. Now, why? There is the original explanation of why we're equal, which people tend to forget. It's the goose that laid the golden egg. And that philosophical explanation of equality was given by Thomas Jefferson in the DOI, Declaration of Independence. He said we hold these truths be, I explained this a lot yesterday, we hold these truths be self-evident. Self-evident is a technical philosophical term that Jefferson used. It means that something proves itself so it can't be pushed into an infinite regress of proofs. That's why I use the word self-evident. He's basically telling the King of England and the Parliament, we're not going to argue about this, that if you don't see the equality, you're just sort of cognitively deficient or cognitively impaired, so we don't have to prove it. So he states it as a self-evident fact that we're equal. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all people are created equal. And just a very quick summary of what I was explaining yesterday. Uh, Jefferson lived at a time when the Scottish skeptic David Hume was well known. And Hume said that um, we assume all kinds of things to be true, like values, like something is good or bad, but you can't prove it. There's no scientific proof of it. Like let, let's say someone commits a good act, like, like helping an elderly person. You can study that act scientifically, and you, you don't find the goodness. No empirical investigation will turn up the quality of goodness. It's just something human beings attribute to it. Or let's say an evil act, someone kills an innocent person. You can study the act, you know, do forensic studies and everything. Where's the evil? The evil is not a scientifically discernible part of that action. And so therefore, as Hume showed, you cannot derive a metaphysical truth, like this act was good, that act was evil. Those are values. Those, good and evil are not physical things, they're metaphysical. So you can't derive them from a physical thing. You can't, here's a physical act, a material act, and we derive the value of good or evil. He, Jefferson actually uh, sort of preempts a possible skeptic object, objection by saying, the metaphysical fact of our equality actually comes from a Another metaphysical fact, which is there's a creator. Jefferson was very bright, you know, smart guy, he knew philosophy, and so, so the Declaration of Independence, just in the first couple of lines, is really like a little philosophy course, if you know what he means. So he said, we hold these truths to be self-evident that we're all created equal, and then someone might argue that, well, you know, maybe nature created us, maybe the devil created us, and so he says, endowed by our creator, so it's not just chance, it's not just, there is a creator. Endowed by a creator with inalienable rights, uh, because it's just like in the civil rights movement, the uh, federal government, and, and say the Supreme, the Supreme Court declared that certain state laws violated federal laws or constitution, and of course the, the federal laws take precedence over state laws. And that was a basic legal argument. So in the same way, uh, the idea here, Jefferson's argument is, and just to, to repeat what I said yesterday, Jefferson was uh, writing this at a time when probably the most popular sacred music in the Western world was Handel's Messiah Oratorio, including the climax, you know, Hallelujah, in which one of the climactic lines is King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And so that's what he's, he's actually referring to that universal understanding that 
the king of England or the parliament may have made some law, but there's a higher king and there's a higher lord and there's a higher law. And therefore the rights are inalienable because they come from the higher court, or the higher authority. So, okay, getting back to my main argument. So if you think democracy is a good way to govern, if you think that we're actually equal in some way, then that means you live in a bi-dimensional universe. That means you live in a universe in which there is a physical dimension and a metaphysical dimension. Your concept of reality is bi-dimensional. And not only do we believe that, but actually we experience it in the core of our being. The fact, for example, you should love your child and protect your child and not harm, not harm your child. I mean, that truth, that moral truth, is something we experience in the deepest part of our being and it's as real as anything else we can possibly experience by looking through a microscope or a telescope. Or in some ways, it's more real. And so, in fact, even science, I mean, science can't prove that there's a real world outside our minds. They can't prove that. But they assume it to be true because they think it's self-evident that there's a real world out there. So just as it's self-evident there's a real world out there, although you can't prove it, for various logical reasons, it's equally self-evident that you should protect your children and not harm them. That's equally self-evident. It's and, and when people experience God, that becomes actually the most self-evident fact. If there is a God and God has supreme existence, then the experience of God would be the most powerfully self-evident fact in the universe. And so in that way, using the same logic that allows people to do science, we can claim that there are metaphysical truths in the world, and since the ground rules of empirical science don't allow them to talk about metaphysical things, no empirical science can ever give a complete description of reality. Very simple, isn't it? So, any questions on that? I mean, I've talked for a while. Let's take a break and probably eat a big pack of chocolate or something. Yes? Well, I have somebody else a question. I was just thinking that, you know, so you basically established the idea of um, an individual personal self that is, you know, that remains so, and the existence of a one God. So if, if I realize that and accept that, what do you do with that? What does that mean in terms of, you know, application? Okay, okay. Well, um, it's like, for example, let's say, let's say a man discovers, actually, I have a child. There's a lot of like movies like that and great novels in the 19th century where some man's living his life and then he, he discovers, I actually have a child. And so when you discover that, what should you do? You should do what any decent human being would do if you discover you have a child. You love and take care of your child. And so... Um, so if you discover, not just because someone told you you blindly believe it, but if you actually discover that there is a God, that's a real game changer. It, it, it's just a game changer what it, 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 in terms of what your ultimate duties are, who you are, and all that stuff. And, and so one has to be thoughtful, not just in the sense of becoming dogmatic or fanatic or those things which the world really doesn't need 
any more of. But but in terms of, you know, in a reasonable, thoughtful way, understanding the consequences of that fact. And I can share with you one experience I had on the, on the day my father passed away, which was about, um, I guess, 16 and a half years ago. I came from a very good family, close family. I was very fortunate to have really good parents, very loving parents. And so when my father passed away, um, you know, it, it, it was a very significant thing for me. And I remember lying in bed that night lying in bed that night thinking about it and um, realizing that when I was born, when I was brought into this world by my parents, that my experience of my parents' love for me, and they were very loving parents, my experience of their love for me was actually my first experience of God. Not just because psychologically little kids think their parents are God, but because it's actually God's love for me which it's actually God who inspired my parents to love me. Whereas we can take it for granted, well, just parents love children. That's just natural, but not really. If you look at other species, for example, male lions uh, tend, you know, sometimes they kill their own offspring. And other creatures, you know, may eat their offspring. So it's not, you can say, well, it's just natural, but what does that even mean, natural? It just means it happens all the time. Why? And so the question is, why does it happen all the time? And the real point is, I mean, Krishna says in the Bhagavad Gita, for example, now to quote the good book, <laughs> Krishna says, um, Pitahamasya Jagato Mata Dhata Pitaha. I'm the father of this universe. I'm the mother, the creator, the grandfather. And so I realized that night as I lay in bed uh, that God, or Krishna, whatever you call it, had inspired my mother and father to love me. That, that God in the heart of my parents inspired them to love me and he inspired them by sharing with them his own love for me, his own paternal love for me. And so, and so in that sense, my experience of my parents' love for me was my first experience of God. So, so, if, we, so if we actually realize this, then, um, you know, so again, you know, I, I, I actually write. And so, you know, the movies, another typical plot is that uh, someone thought, there's one movie where some girl, American lady, born in England, her mother died, she comes back to England to claim some inheritance, and then she discovers through this plot twist that her mother actually is still alive. And then she has to deal with that fact and why, you know, why my mother rejected me and of course, there's a whole story behind it. It's not, she wasn't just a bad mother, but. So, so when this actress, or this girl in the story, keep you in the story, but not an actress, this, this lady, who's a very successful businesswoman in New York. And when she discovers her mother is still alive, or still alive and meets her mother, tracks her mother down actually, it changes her life. I mean, you can't, you can't be a normal human being who thinks your mother is gone and then discover your mother is still alive and then actually find your mother, you can't do that and say, well, I guess life will be basically just as it always was. I mean, obviously that's gonna change a lot of things. Emotionally, I mean, at every level, you're gonna start a new life now. 
And so, and so in the same way, when you discover, well, a lot of people know that God exists. I mean, it's not like we're the only ones that know that. But when you actually have an intimate, powerful experience of God, it's, it's a game changer. Because it's something, you know, God is so great. If I just discovered, hey, you know, I actually have a seventh cousin named Henry living in Pittsburgh, and I never knew that. Okay, well, put him on the Christmas card list. You know, it, it, it's not just like that. It, it's discovering someone who actually is a source of your own existence. And so you learn something most powerful and significant about who you are. You know, it's like people want to get back to their roots. I mean, psychology is based on that. Okay, did you have a did you have a happy childhood? How did you you know? What did you think about your parents? What did they think about you? And you know, try to get back like where are you coming from psychologically? What are your psychological roots? Or what are your financial roots? You know, if you have parents that did well, that's a that makes life a lot easier. So um, when you find out. When you find the source of your own existence, it's only then you can begin to understand who you really are, ultimately. So it, you know, it's interesting because this will come as a real shocker, I know, to everybody here, but our government sometimes is not that bright. Um, I mean, one of the best cases of this, I mean, a really good example is they had these court cases where, let's say, Christian groups wanted to teach intelligent design of the universe and then you had these other groups saying that's trying to teach religion in the schools so therefore you should only teach evolution without going into that discussion what i found really interesting about this was how wonderfully ignorant the courts were of western intellectual history because they were saying, well, it's just a plot by Christians to teach Christianity in schools. Actually, um, intelligent design theory is a philosophical position that predates Christianity by many centuries, by many, many, many centuries. It is a perennial philosophical position. And um, compatible with all the known evidence in some ways actually more compatible with the evidence, actually even more compatible with the fossil record in many ways than evolution theory, than unguided evolution. I mean, evolution is one thing. Unguided evolution is actually, I think you would show, logically less compatible with the fossil record. So, yeah, so, so that's been, I mean, since the beginning of time, it's a very powerful idea. It's not about just trying to convert someone to this or that religion. It's about just trying to be rational and trying to open your mind to the greatest ideas. Because it, just as I said, empirical science, a priori, in other words, logically, not just, okay, let them try to understand everything. Oops, they didn't do it. It's, it's not something that, it's not an inductive process. It's not that inductively we say that empiricism cannot give a complete description of reality. It's logically impossible, just like it's logically impossible to have a round square. It's not that if someone says, is there a round square in the world? Well, let me go look. Okay, I spent, you know, I spent the best years of my life looking and I couldn't find one. So therefore, there probably aren't round squares. No, it's not an inductive empirical issue. 
It is a logical fact that there are no round squares. You don't need to look. If you know what the English word round means, and if you know what the English word square means, there are no round squares. So the statement, a round square, actually has no meaning. The, the semantic content, the meaning content is zero. It doesn't mean anything. It's a pseudo statement. It actually doesn't say anything at all. And so just as empiricism cannot give a complete description of reality as we perceive it, uh, spiritual philosophy can. Because if you look at the basic principles, the basic assumptions or the basic self, you know, the claims of self-evident facts in uh, theology, let's just say, I mean, not just what we're doing. I mean, you know, it could be any good theology, any religion. Uh, it does actually, it is, it can consistently within its own ground rules and according to its own basic self-evident principles explain everything. So you can say, what about the problem of evil? You know, why is there, the basic argument for the problem of evil is if there's a triple O God, triple O God, you know, like triple threat. What is that? In, is that in baseball or football? They talk about triple threat. In baseball? What's that? arts or singing? Oh, no, I was talking about baseball. So in um, a triple O God is a God who is omnipotent, all-powerful, uh, omniscient, all-knowing, and omnibenevolent, all-good. So if God knows everything, he knows people are suffering. If God is all-good, he wants to stop people suffering. If God is all-powerful, he can stop people suffering. And, um, but that he doesn't. Therefore, there cannot be a God who's all good, all knowing, and, um, and all powerful. That's the argument. So what do we do with that argument? Uh, we, well, we rebuke it in the name of Krishna. Just kidding. So what we do with that argument is, um, and what I'm, and, and I think our answer to that is, um, it's a philosophical response. It's not a doctrinal response like our good book says. It's not a mystery. It's not like the, you know, Job in the Bible where, well, you know, you just can't figure this one out. You're not God and you can't figure this one out. Well, we would, first of all, in our tradition, we have a big advantage to deal with this specific problem. Not only our tradition, but actually in many Indo-European, you know, philosophies. And that is the idea of reincarnation. Because if you accept, if you accept that there's an eternal soul within a body, and if you accept that God is all good, it, it, it practically it's logically required that there be reincarnation because, I mean, let's say you have a child and your child is misbehaving. You don't give up on your child. You know, you, you may give a suitable punishment, you know, you don't want to spoil your child, child has to know the relationship between misbehavior and punishment because otherwise children that are spoiled go out into the real world when their parents aren't there and basically become dysfunctional or criminals because they don't understand that you can't just do whatever you want. So letting kids do whatever they want is a great way to destroy their lives. And, and in fact, um, what child psychology shows is that the best parents 
bring two things to their parenting. Love, they really love their children, and they bring boundaries. If you love your child, there's no boundaries, you're gonna get a, you know, a loved monster. And if you bring boundaries but no love, you, you know, I mean, you know what that leads to. So, so from God's point of view, there are boundaries, you know, there are consequences. There have to be consequences or you can never raise someone to be a good person. But God doesn't give up. I mean, how could a human being be more patient and merciful than God? I mean, I know myself in terms of my own feelings. Let's say someone is misbehaving, someone I care about, and then they die. I wish for that person another chance. I would like for that person to have another life to try again. I mean, anyone you love, you want them to get another chance. So how could we be more merciful than God? If God is infinitely merciful and he's not, he doesn't really fit the bill, you know? I mean, if God, if someone's, if, if you say this is God, but he's not infinitely merciful, I think, you know, will the real God please stand up? John Stuart Mill, the English philosopher, said, how can I worship a God who is morally inferior to so many human beings? So, if God is merciful, if you're an eternal soul, and God puts you in this virtual reality machine, a material body, let you take your best shot at being foolish in the material world, but he's trying to educate you, and you didn't make it, you know, no social promotion, so you gotta take the course again. But that's what happens. It's like, if, you know, if you have a child in school and the child flunks, you don't kill the child, you just, the child has to repeat the course. And that's all reincarnation is. It means if you flunk, you've got to take the course again. No social promotions. It's just simple. And so if you consider that we're eternal souls and bodies, and then we just, I mean, God is infinitely merciful. He says, well, just keep trying, you know. I'll help you, but just, I mean, sooner or later, you're going to get it. And that, so then, but why is there suffering? Because we sometimes deserve it. I mean, I mean, take, for example, Hitler. You can use Hitler as a good example because it's very unlikely when you're talking to people, someone's gonna think he was a good person. So if you take Hitler and say he reincarnated, okay, maybe he was some cute baby, that, but that's little baby Hitler, I mean, so, so if, if that baby suffered in some way, oh, there, there cannot be a God, that poor little baby suffered. So I'm not saying every baby that suffers was Hitler in their last life. <laughs> I'm, I'm just saying that if it's a fact that we have past lives, then it is possible that our suffering and enjoyment, that we caused it, that we ourselves caused it. Now, someone could say, even if we did, I can't believe anyone could do anything so bad as to, let's say, like be tortured, for example, to give like a sort of gruesome example. But there are torturers all over the place, especially in some parts of the world. I mean, take the Islamic State. I mean, there's, you know, thousands of people who, you know, happily torture others. And so to say that human beings could never do anything to deserve that kind of punishment, well, it happens all the time. Then you could say, well, but still, how could God do that? We have to remember something. We're not the body. It's just like I, like I said, I had very good parents. I'm sure you know, many of you had very good loving parents. So 
my parents, you know, punished me, but they never injured me. My mother ruled the house. My father went out and, you know, earned the tofu and <laughs> bacon and brought home the tofu. And so my mother never injured me. My mother never injured me. I mean, I mean, she put the fear of God in me. She definitely did that. But she never injured me. If God is a loving parent, it must follow that he would never injure his own child. How could a loving parent injure their own child? You can scare them a little bit sometimes. You can punish them. You don't actually harm them. And so if you remember that we're not the body, we're actually eternal souls, no soul in the history of the universe has ever actually been injured or killed. The body is. And so then the question is, well, what is the body? And as uh, an old friend of mine who passed away, who was a great scientist, actually, Svaputa, he said that it, it, it's a virtual reality machine. It's a virtual reality machine. I mean, I remember one time I went to Universal or I grew up in LA, so I got kind of sick of Disneyland by my high school grad night. You know, it's like, I can't take it anymore. But anyway, but now they have all kinds of new things they didn't have back then. So, but I remember one, one rocket ride where, you know, everyone knew it's a ride. It's a Disneyland ride. And um, at one point, you're, you know, you're about to crash into some planet and everyone's ducking. You know, everyone's like screaming and ducking. It's like a virtual reality experience. So, as, as, and, and, and what I'm saying does not trivialize human suffering. It doesn't, it doesn't like, hey, you're not your body, so what if you just like, you know, lost a, a dear one or you just, you know, suffered some horrible accident, you know, forget about it, man, you know, grow up, you're not your body. That's not what I'm saying. That's not what I'm saying. People are attached to their body and they do suffer terribly because they falsely take themselves to be the body and it's real suffering. I mean, I mean, even if suffering is based on a mistake, which this is, it's still real suffering. I mean, imagine, for example, someone that gets the terrible news that their, you know, their child died in an automobile accident, you know, their parents are grieving and then they get another call, whoops, sorry, wrong, wrong kid. You know, your child's here, safe, sound. You know, I mean, there's also movies about like that. I can tell you every kind of movie. But anyway, so the fact is that when the parents believe they've lost their child, I mean, it's real suffering. They're really suffering, even though it's based on a mistake. So we're not trivializing human suffering. In fact, that's why Krishna says so often in the Bhagavad Gita, you cannot ultimately achieve love of God if you don't care about other souls. And, and you have statements also in the Bhagavatam like that where, I mean, of course, Jesus said it very beautifully, love your neighbor as yourself. It's interesting. I mean, one thing I most admire about the teachings of Jesus, I have to say, is um, that he took all these laws. There was this huge corpus of Jewish law. And by the way, that's what they meant by saying you can't, you know, achieve God by works. They didn't mean you don't have to do good things in the world. They meant you don't have to follow all these technical rules. But anyway, so, you know, in all these different books of the Old Testament, there, there are all these laws, and, and, and they're very elaborate and complicated and technical. 
And then Jesus said that there's actually two laws. <laughs> Jesus said there's actually two laws. If you just follow those two laws, you know, you, you did it. You're okay. And he didn't make these things up. He was actually quoting from the Old Testament. And he said, love God with all your heart, soul, and might. Love your neighbor as yourself. And if, and if you think about it, that's a complete program. If anything, we would say, and Jesus didn't deny this, he just didn't say it, but that your neighbors are not just human. Your neighbors are not just human. There are, you have, you know, neighbors and other species. Because after all, I mean, consider this, I'll give you a very short, simple argument for animal rights, which I think is, uh, I think is logically sound. And that is, if God created all creatures, and if a particular creature, like let's say a mammal, like a horse or a pig or a cow or whatever, if a particular creature can feel pleasure and pain, the real pleasure and pain, can feel fear, even terror, as in fact animals can. Anyone that's ever like, you know, like bred horses or dogs, I mean, you know that animals can feel really intense emotions. They can be, they can be terrified. They can be happy. They can feel real pain, agony, and so on. So if God created this capacity to experience pleasure and pain, how could God not care about their pleasure and pain? I mean, I want to give an example from Jane Austen. It's interesting, if, if, you, if you read Jane Austen, if you know her, the world that she describes, and if you know her moral universe, one of the worst things a man can do in that moral universe, one of the worst offenses a man can commit is creating in a woman the expectation of a serious relationship or marriage to sort of, as they would say back then, create an attachment, you know, by flirting, by being really nice and taking the girl out. In other words, the man acts in such a way to, as to attach the girl to him, but he has no intention of actually marrying her. He's just playing with her. He's just satisfying his own vanity. Maybe he wants to sexually exploit her. And so to create the capacity for suffering, because if the woman were not attached to that man, he could not cause her suffering because if you're not attached to someone, it's like, you can do whatever you want, I don't care. But when you really are attached to someone, that person can hurt you. And so to create that capacity for pain and then to inflict the pain without any consideration, I mean, is considered to be a disgusting, low thing to do. And people that do that are really, you know, kind of like disgusting human beings. And so, in other words, you don't play with people's emotions. You don't create attachment if you don't intend to actually commit yourself to the person. And so, let's go back to God. This is actually an analogy from our hero, Jane Austen. So now, talking about... Um, God, how could God create, let's say, a dog with the capacity to feel pain and then be completely indifferent when the dog does feel pain? Because if God had not made the dog that way, the dog wouldn't feel pain. 
God created that vulnerability, you could say. And, and, and so how could God, if God created all creatures and, and in, in more developed creatures, a real capacity for pleasure and pain, how could God be indifferent if I cause pain to a creature? And of course, in America, we have this wonderful schizophrenic law system. Like I remember that uh, years ago, there was a quarterback for the Atlanta Falcons who was like having like, you know, mistreating dogs, remember that? Like dog fights and killing dogs. And, and the whole country was outraged and he went to prison. He went to, he went to prison, he did hard time. And you get all these people, you know, talking about how bad it is over their steak dinner. And they didn't see any contradiction there. The fact is, they were, they're eating food which was obtained by horrible brutality to a creature, equally conscious, equally conscious. And yet they just, they just don't see the connection. It's interesting because in the Western world, animals don't have rights unless they make cute urban pets. They make cute urban pets. So if you can emotionally bond with a creature because it makes a good urban pet. I mean, a cow makes a nice pet, but on a farm, not in an apartment or house. And so if you think about the philosophy of law, the worst kind of government, the, or, or, or political philosophy, the worst kind of government is where people themselves have no rights, but you live or die at the whim of a tyrant. It's like in the Roman Colosseum, you know, the emperor would say, live or die. You don't have a right, the, you know, you don't have any intrinsic rights, the rights are not on you. If the tyrant, for whatever whim, feels like it, you die or you live. Whereas in civilized law, the right is in the person himself or herself. And so no matter what the ruler may think, the ruler must follow the law. The ruler must respect your legitimate rights, whatever their particular mood swing may be that day. Now, in the case of American law toward non-humans, it's the bad kind of law, that a creature's rights emanate not from the fact that creature is conscious, can feel pain and fear, happiness, but it's just the whim of the lawmaker. It's just the whim of the lawmaker. We like dogs. Dogs have rights. We don't find cows to be so cute. They have no rights. Or horses. I mean, the French, this is kind of really disgusting, but they, they actually breed horses as meat. I mean, they have, you know, sorry, didn't want to gross you out, but <laughs> so so therefore, why do animals have rights? Because God gave them the capacity to feel pleasure and pain, and therefore, you are morally responsible for causing pain to any creature. If you cause pain unnecessarily, you unnecessarily cause pain, suffering to another creature, how can you not be responsible for that? I have to say, this is just me now. One thing which is just, I don't think I'll ever really understand, and that is you see people fishing. And when the fish comes out, what could be, it, it couldn't be more obvious, the fish is in agony. That's why they're squirming on the hook. I mean, they're, you know, they just got a hook through their mouth and they're, you know, desperately thrashing about 
dying and people wow that's a good wholesome sport i mean i mean to have such a and it's very popular it's a very popular sport all over the world to have a sport which is so popular based on obvious agony is something which it, it's just it's just kind of beyond me i mean it just it's just something i can't quite figure out because it's right there in front of your face the agony the suffering is right right there in front of you and you just don't see it so to enjoy someone else's agony to enjoy someone else's suffering is a very strange notion of happiness Anyway, so, yes, go ahead. Um, so you said at one point that we're not the only ones who know about there being one God. Yes, of like course. Like, there's a few groups of people that know. Yeah, definitely. So I, I've heard in the past that, like, in the personalist, people who are personalists, they eventually go to whatever impersonal realm or whatever that they believe in. And I've also heard that, like, people who are really hardcore devotees of Lord Ram go somewhere where Lord Ram resides. So is that is it like that with every person, like hardcore Christians or like people who believe in what they believe very, very intensely, or do they have to reincarnate to come on the right path? Well I mean God respects our free will. So if you devote yourself to a particular object, I mean that, that God respects that. Mm -hmm. That's that's what you chose. At the same time, uh, it's interesting, you know, how you want to interpret the famous statement attributed to Jesus in chapter 14 of the book of John, uh, that I have more to teach you, but, you know, not now. I mean, of course, there's a whole historical context for that. But... Um, Yeah, I mean, God, I think we respect people's religious choices and God respects people's religious choices. If someone thinks God wants me to, you know, murder innocent people, I'd say, I, 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 I can't really call that real religion. I mean, so, so if, someone, if someone is, you know, in their own way, trying to love God, trying to help other people, yeah, that's real. And we, we have to respect that. And I'm sure God respects that. At the same time, what our basic claim is, which some people will accept and some won't, obviously, is that we are offering advanced knowledge of God. Same God, it's not a different God. There are many people in the world worshiping God, and they're really worshiping God. We know that, and we respect that. We're simply saying, here's some advanced information about it. We're not saying that you're worshiping a false God, or that's not true religion. You know, we're not making getting really silly like that. <coughs> Is there any water? Oh, I came to okay. Yes. I was just wondering, we're talking about like, um, you know, the idea of equality, and in the Bhagavad Gita talks about how humble sage, you know, sees all beings as equal. Yeah. And so is that something, that vision of seeing all creatures as equal, is that something you cultivate separately? Or does it just kind of fold itself into as you practice Krishna consciousness and your consciousness raises, then you start to just develop that vision? Or is it because that's one question. And then the other question is about like, because he's telling Arjuna that on the battlefield, and it seems to 
be better on the battlefield to be seeing the differences and okay. seeing everyone as equal. So Okay. Well, first of all, Krishna compares the process of enlightenment to the to the sun, Aditya Vajjana. And, of course, a lot of philosophers, including Plato, have done this. But think of the sunrise. When the sun's rising, everything is illumined simultaneously and equally. And if you're standing, let's say you're standing out somewhere, and the sun is rising as, as the day dawns, everything is illumined simultaneously and equally. Just the nature of the sunrise or nature of the sun. And so the analogy here is that as we become enlightened, as we become God conscious, so to speak, <clears throat> we see ourselves as spiritual beings exactly to the same extent we see everybody else. You can't see yourself as a soul and not see other people as souls because it's like the sunrise, you see everything. And so if someone claims to be spiritual but just is not nice to other people, that's you know, sort of typical hypocrisy. So, yeah, so it all comes at once. When Krishna talks about differences, it's because some lifestyles, some behaviors, certain attitudes are more conducive than others to enlightenment. For example, everyone is a soul. Everyone is equally and eternally part of God, a soul. And yet, if, some, if, if, if a soul within a body is acting cruelly and another soul is acting mercifully, Obviously, cruelty and mercy have very different effects in the world. A person that acts cruelly is going to, is really taking themselves far away from real knowledge and real life. Whereas the person acting kindly or mercifully is advancing toward self-understanding, you know, understanding oneself as a spiritual being. So our ultimate identities are all equal, but our behaviors uh, are different. And then in terms of like our human being on the battlefield. Yeah. Why did Krishna speak the Gita on the battlefield? Well, or just that verse on a battlefield, you know, to see everyone as equal. So, you know, you kind of need to see people. Because Arjuna, I mean, if you're, let's say, you're in a battle, and in that battle, there were actually moral distinctions. I mean, you have to know the whole story. It occurs within Mahabharata, this great epic history. And the Gita itself is actually just a small part, I mean, in terms of number of verses of a much larger history. And so if you reward good and punish evil, you're actually treating everyone equally. Because in both cases, you're doing what's best for people. When, 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 when evil is punished, like for example, someone kills or rapes, and that person is punished, you're actually doing what's best for that person. Because that person has to understand, it's like that great Bob Dylan song, you know, how does it feel? So 
if I cause suffering and then the suffering comes back to me, either by karma or by state punishment, that's the best thing for me because now I understand how it feels. At the same time, if someone acts virtuously and that person is rewarded, that I'm encouraging virtue. And so in both cases, I'm doing what's best for, for each person. Anything else? Stump the Swami? Yes. Kind of a follow-up on the Vedic question. As far as practical advice for where a philosophical monotheist meets a tribal monotheist, I mean, I'm kind of thinking now, in, in, in school, I mean, I'm there, let's say I'm a philosophical monotheist, so I get to go in, right? I'm seeing a, a Christian they're worshiping Krishna, right? As far as I'm concerned, in a different way, they have less knowledge. And I would feel, and I have, right? That like, hey, let me go talk to this person. We have, you know, we have something in common, you know, we have some sentiments and things, whereas maybe somebody who don't believe in God at all, whatever. But uh, but from their perspective, right? I'm, I mean, to, like you said. Right? To, be fair, I, to be fair to Christians, uh, the latest Pew study, and that's like the main uh, survey institute that studies religion. Two-thirds of Christians in America, of any type, you know, Protestant, Catholic, whatever, believe that people in other religions can go to heaven. And, and, and so the, the image of Christians as being fanatical is actually uh, not, it's not accurate at this point in time. I mean, there are certain high-profile preachers that may be fanatical or this or that, but but in terms of two-thirds of all Christians in America, they're not fanatical. And uh, so we have to respect that. But if, if we are... Also, I have to say, because, you know, I mean, just to be honest, that I think it's obvious that there are some Christians who are just nicer people than some devotees. I mean, let's be honest here. And, you know, I know when I was at, I, I spent a year writing in a beautiful college town, North Carolina, Davidson, North Carolina. And I sort of, you know, came sort of friends with the local, um, he was Episcopalian minister, young guy, and he also taught Bible classes at the college, very prestigious little college. And um, so we were talking, he was a good guy. I mean, he wasn't fanatical at all. Sincere, is doing good work in the world. He's a nice guy, a nice family. And so... Um, you know, we have to give credit where credit's due. There's a lot of good people out there in many traditions. And it's not that because some, frankly, I mean, everyone knows, should know by now, it's not because someone chants Hare Krishna, they're a better person than someone, let's say, that, that, that's worshiping Jesus. I mean, we know there's a lot of examples where that's not the case. So we should... Um, I mean, in the real world. So we should just be respectful to everyone, appreciate the good things that good people are doing, and try to humbly present this advanced knowledge the best we can. Yes? When we chant Hare Krishna... Mega uh, pregunta. <laughs> in Spanish or English? English, yeah, go ahead. Uh, when we, we chant Hare Krishna, um, we, we, should, we should work in 
internal in ourselves to get to be a better person to to get better you know qualities and all the chanting shoes is automatically do that it automatically is cleaning the heart and you will become a good person yeah you could actually leave it like a little <laughs> tape running you know chanting Hare Krishna's go to sleep and wake up <laughs> virtuous no actually uh, what Rupa Goswami says in the, in the Bhakti uh, Upadeshamrita is that if you think that the results of spiritual practice just are automatic, that will destroy your devotion. So, yeah, I mean, it, it's sincerity. It's, it's our sincerity. It's our earnest desire to be better persons. And then God reciprocates with that. God helps those. Sometimes, you know, the devotees say, oh, just chant Hare Krishna, you know. Well, it, yeah, well, I would add, just, you know, maybe chant God's names very sincerely with a very heartfelt desire to be a better person. And that's what you need to do. So if we're talking about, you know, taking God's name with great sincerity and, and, and real desire to be a better person, yeah, then it's, it will, that will do it. Not just mumbling. Yeah. As Ritabha Swami always says, Nick Snake Giri Giri. You know, I mean, not just. Yes? But isn't there some automatic benefit derived? I think not nearly as much as we imagine. Mm -hmm. There was the idea that, uh, well, we call Agyata Sukriti, or even just like, okay, I'm Shainari Krishna, I'm really just mumbling my way through it, and I'm thinking about my shopping list, but at least that's Shainari Krishna. Um, The, the picture we get from Bhagavad Gita is that Krishna is speaking as a rational, fair-minded, reasonable deity, giving cogent arguments and instructions to Arjuna and expecting him to respond appropriately. So, I mean, that, that's the picture we get. So if, if you're trying, let, let's say you're tr trying to chant God's name, you're trying to pray to God, and maybe your mind is so disturbed for whatever reason, you're just, you're just really disturbed, you're really upset, or you just, you just can't focus that day, but you're trying. So it, you know, it, it's like they always say in yoga classes, don't worry about how far the person next to you can stretch, you know, just do the best you can. So, <laughs> isn't it? Yeah. So, if you're trying to chant Hare Krishna, sincerely, you're really putting your heart into it, it's just that that day or that week or at this point in your life doesn't come out so well. But you're trying. It's the trying. It's just like, I mean, think about a physical workout. You may be lifting, you know, 100 pounds or 3 pounds, but it's the fact that you're really trying. You're really, you're doing the best you can. You're working out. Because, you know, it, 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 people are, are in different conditions. You know, for some, you know, for some people, they may have some disability, they may be recovering from an accident, or, or whatever it may be. I mean, for them, just to lift up 10 pounds may be an incredible accomplishment. 
And for someone else, maybe it's lifting up, you know, 200 pounds. So, so it's not just the number. It's not just, it's how hard you tried, how sincere you are. And so I may look at your life and say, well, why don't you do this? Why don't you do that? But it may be that you're really sincere. You're really doing your best. You can't ask more of somebody. It's, it's like a parent with a child, teacher with a student. If you see that the person you're responsible for is actually doing their best, whatever their best looks like, you have to accept that because they're trying their best. So I think it's about our, you know, sincerely trying, however it comes out. Yes? Um, so, like, if we're really trying to chant holy names as a king, um, isn't it, if, even if we're chanting and we're not seeing, like, miraculous results, like it's a miracle or anything, isn't it a non-operat not to think of the holy name in that way, regardless? You just do your best. You just do your best. I mean, logically, how can you do more than your best? It's like, what would that even look like? Your best means your best. Doesn't matter what it looks like, you did your best. So, I'd like to thank you all for your uh, questions. Oh, should I do the infomercial? Oh, and Richie, where are the books? Oh, here, oh here's one. Hi. <laughs> My name is H.D. Bill Shulman. <laughs> what, what, what's that thing the used car salesman on TV said folks I lose money on every deal but I make it up on the volume <laughs> it's a joke anyway so yeah here's the Bhagavad Gita it's um, you're welcome we you know offering these very literal translation categorical explanation it's a proven cure for the common cold. <coughs> Just kidding. So, uh, thank you all very much. We have some prashadam for everybody? Yeah, it's a very literal translation, actually. We've got really good reviews from scholars, professors at prestigious universities. So, can we, how do we? Oh, yeah, we asked for a $10 donation, cheap. The money just goes to reprint them. I thought it was interesting what you said at the I anger you know, when you listened to your before this about how you translated it. And yeah. I'm not sure if they're wrong terms, but that was, I like what you said about like how you kept it down to like minimal words in the English translation. Yeah, yeah. Literally, like what the same to say. Yeah. Even if it's a little confusing, I thought mm, this is what it says. Yeah. So that's what it sounds like in Sanskrit. Cheers. Hey, go be. Bring, bring your chairs if you want. Oh, oh my God. I have to stop the recording. Oh, thank you. Thank you out there.